All right, on Thanksgiving uh, Day, earlier this week, Amber and I went out and had a very nice dinner at a restaurant downtown. By the way, if you want a recommendation for the best Italian food in the city, I got you covered. We've discovered it. We've been to this place multiple times, and it's absolutely amazing. So we had a fabulous dinner together, and then we were walking home. And on the walk home, I noticed a wall that had some graffiti on it that kind of stuck out to me. Actually, every wall downtown has graffiti on it, but this one really did catch my attention because of what it said. Somebody had taken a marker and scrawled on the exterior of this building the phrase, women are the root of all evil. <laughs> it's there. I could, I, we can go down there. I can show you. You can ask my wife. That's what it said. Now, listen, normally I wouldn't give a second thought to the ramblings of some tweaker. Okay. It's like, if he thinks women are the root of all evil, that's his business. I'm not even going to validate it by talking about it, except that's kind of what the Bible teaches, doesn't it? Like, Everything was good in the garden. Adam was just living his life, doing his thing. Everything was happy and peaceful and calm until Eve got deceived by the serpent and she ate the fruit and then everything forever was ruined. Thanks very much, Eve. That's essentially what that, like from the beginning, the opening pages of the Holy Scripture, the Bible kind of teaches women are the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. You and I know that it doesn't actually say that, although many people actually believe that it does. No, no, I think, and I've told you this before, Genesis 1 to 3 is actually, it, it is the most important passage in the Old Testament. I think it's foundational to basically everything, the, the world, to uh, our humanity, to our relationships. And that's why I find it so frustrating that Genesis 1 to 3 is so thoroughly misunderstood by people, especially when it comes to the relationships between men and women we start talking romance and marriage and all of those things, people read Genesis 1 to 3 and they come to some very strange conclusions to me. So as we continue this, he made them series. I want to kind of transition from talking about like gender identity and start talking about gender roles. Okay. Specifically within the context of a Christian marriage, I want to ask questions like, what does a godly wife look like? And then I'm going to mansplain it to you. Okay. (laughs) What does a godly husband do? I'll invite my wife to come up and talk about all the things that I don't do. Uh, If you're here and you're single, I don't want you to think for a moment, oh, great. You know, I showed up for the marriage talk. I've been waiting on a spouse, don't have a spouse. And now I've got to listen to how awesome it is to be married. And yeah, I get it. I understand that you, you may uh, have a temptation to tune out right now and just say, this isn't for me because I'm not at that stage. But can I remind you that it's best to plan ahead? Like you don't start thinking about your financial retirement on the day you retire, right? Like you got to put some money away and, and do some planning three decades in advance. I think you should plan for the marriage that you want to have, even if you don't have one just yet. I think it's going to be helpful whether you're single or you're in the middle of a marriage yourself. What, according to God's original design, is a marriage supposed to look like? As we have over the last few weeks, I actually want to go back to the beginning, to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and look at Adam and Eve, their relationship, their marriage, their story. And the reason is the same as we've talked about for several weeks now, and that is that they are the only people that have ever existed in a sinless state. They're the only marriage that's ever been around that wasn't impacted by the fall of humanity. And so when we look at their uh, situation, circumstances, what the scripture has to say about them, we see God's original intention. We see his original design unimpacted by the negative effects of sin. So it can be very instructive to us to know what he originally desired and designed. So what does it say? 
that he desired and designed. Let's look at Genesis 1 to start. We're going to read verses 26 through 29. We'll have them here on the screen. You can follow along. In Genesis 1, we're on day six of the creation narrative as it's presented here. And the Bible tells us then, verse 26, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. If we jump on down to verse 31, then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Now there is much that I could point out from this section of the scriptures, but what I want to do is I want to highlight, oh, four things that are true in this passage that demonstrate the equality of Adam and Eve. uh, Four things rather that they each receive in this passage without any respective difference because of their gender or sex. So we notice in verse 27 that they both receive the same image of God, that Adam and Eve bear the image of God in equal measure and in equal ways. Now I know there are some of you that are like, duh, every Everybody believes that. Mm, not really. And throughout history, people, even Christians, haven't fully believed that. Verse 28 we see that Adam and Eve received this, they received the same blessing from God. The scripture says, and God blessed them. It doesn't say, and God blessed Adam. No, it says he blessed them, plural. They received the exact same blessing. Verse 28, we also uh, see that they received the same commands from God, the same command, essentially to reproduce and reign. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then govern it. By the way, this um, command to be fruitful and multiply, it's the only command people have ever kept, okay? Every other one we've failed at. This one we've done pretty well. But Adam and Eve, equally together, they receive the exact same command, reproduce and reign. Notice that he doesn't say, now Adam, you're in charge. You're gonna be the boss over all of this stuff. He just says to the man and the woman, reproduce, fill the earth, and then together govern it. And then in verse 29, they receive the same provision, or we might call it the same blessing. God says, to both of them. I've given you all of this to eat. This is your food. This is your right. This is your, um, your free gift from me. So we see a lot of equality in Genesis one. In fact, I could ask the question here, is there anything in Genesis one that hints at a hierarchy between the first man and the first woman? Is there anything that you read in this chapter that suggests that men are supposed to lead and women are supposed to follow? Is there any hint in the verses that there is something dangerous or deficient about women? I don't think so. Like, I don't see anything in Genesis 1 that would communicate that. In fact, it seems to me very clear Genesis 1 teaches that men and women are created with equal natures, equal rights, and equal responsibilities. It seems like God addressed them both as if they were equals in the garden. That's how he made them. 
No, maybe it's just Genesis 1. Like if we read a little bit further, we might get a little more information and maybe there is something in here that says that like women need to be managed some way, okay? So let's look at Genesis chapter number two. We'll read verses 15 to 25 and I'll give you a little context because some people get confused. Like Genesis 1, Genesis 2, is there one creation account? Is there two creation accounts? And it's the same one. All it is is uh, Genesis 2 is the zoomed in version of what happened on day six when God created people, okay? So like, you know how on your phone you like, pinch to zoom. You can zoom into a photo and get more detail. Same thing. Genesis two is the pinch to zoom of day six. It's just telling us in more detail how God created Adam and Eve. So we'll read here in verse number 15. And uh, the scripture has this to say, the Lord placed, oh, sorry, before I read this, let me, let me point out in this moment, you're going to see where it changes in this text. But when we start reading, Eve hasn't been created yet. She's not here yet. Okay. All right. Uh, verse 15, the Lord placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So I want you to notice, file this away in the back of your brain, because we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks. When humanity was given the command not to eat from that particular tree, Eve wasn't there. She didn't get that command directly from God. It was mitigated or or mediated rather to her and apparently not very well through her husband. All right. So uh, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He's like, oh, that's a hippopotamus. That's an eagle. That's a chameleon. All right. He gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, he exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, the man and his wife were both naked and they both felt no shame. There was a big amen after that in the second service. Some guy really liked that verse, but anyway. (laughs) Again, just like with Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, we see a lot of, of evidence of the equality between the man and the woman. In verse 23, we read how they share the same physical makeup. She was created from the same stuff that Adam existed uh, from. They, it's not like, you know, women are some other creature or creation. It's not even like men are from Mars and women are from Venus. No, we are the same thing. There is a sameness about us. In verse 25, we see that they share the same innocence, the same sinlessness. They were both naked and they both felt no shame. So let me ask the same question. Is there anything in Genesis 2 that hints at a hierarchy between men and women? Well, some people say yes. There are a few details that are often pointed to, to say, see, God created men and they're supposed to be in charge, but I want to kind of highlight those arguments and then 
expose them? All right. In uh, one of the first things is often uh, pointed out is that in Genesis two, we read that Adam was created before Eve. Adam came first and Eve was second. So some people argue that that means that Adam is primary and Eve is secondary, that he's the main thing. He's the focus and she's kind of ancillary or auxiliary. He was, you know, why did God create Adam first? Because he was the, the, the big show. And then she came afterwards. But does the text say that? Does the Bible say anything in this passage about him being created first, her being created second, therefore she is meant to follow and he's meant to lead? No, absolutely not. Plus, we could argue that um, if, if earlier creation gives you priority over things that were created later after you, then we got to admit that llamas were created before humans. All right. That's like day five. We didn't come along until day six. So if we're following that uh, interpretive strategy here, then I guess llamas are ruling over people. No, that doesn't make any sense. All right. The second thing that's often pointed out is that, uh, and you might've noticed this in the text, God very famously calls Eve Adam's helper, Adam's helper, the uh, King James version, like that your grandparents and grandparents might've read back in the day. It said that Eve was a, a help that was meat for him, meaning appropriate. She was his help meat. I, I remember like my grandmother used to say, like, you'll find a help meat one day. And I was like, what is that? I'm looking for a wife. I don't need a help meat. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Now, by calling it, uh, by calling her rather his helper, that phrase could indicate that Adam is supposed to be the boss. He's the ruler and Eve is there to support him in that role. Eve is like the assistant to the garden manager, if you follow. All right. But remember in Genesis one, they were given the exact same responsibilities. God told them both fill the earth and then govern over it. And then beyond that, um, th this phrase in English, when we say helper, it, it kind of carries this idea of being being an assistant or a servant or a subordinate, right? Um, I think of like the dad that's like under the sink and fixing the plumbing and he needs somebody to pass him the screwdriver. And so he's like, hey, can somebody help me get me a screwdriver here? And so he's the one doing the real work and the helper is just there to make it a little bit easier on him. Are you following me? The word that's translated helper in Hebrew does not mean assistant or subordinate or servant. If you go back to verse 18, which is kind of the big one, one, right? Um, the, the scripture says that there was no helper who was just right for him found among the animals. No helper who was just right. That phrase in Hebrew can be tried, or it, it is the way you pronounce it is Azer Konegdo, Azer Konegdo. And um, the word Azer, helper, it doesn't mean assistant or supporter in the way that we often think about in English. The word really means one who provides vital aid, particularly in times of danger or disaster. Another way to translate that particular word biblically that carries some of the meaning behind it is to say that Azer is a deliverer or a rescuer. Like you're in trouble and unless somebody comes to your aid or your help, things are going to end very, very badly for you. Do you know who's called Azer most often in the Bible? God. God is the far and away, like a multitude of times over, God is the one who is called our Azar. One example is Psalm 33, 20, which says, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our Azar, our help and our shield. Now, if being a help means that you are somehow subordinate and God is our help, 
Well, nobody argues that God is subordinate to us simply because he's our Azer, right? So the word doesn't mean assistant or servant or subordinate. That, that second word, connecto, uh, it's, it's really a, a very compound and complex Hebrew word. We're not going to get into the etymology of all of it and stuff. But one way to translate it is to, to say that it means to be the same, but different. Same, but different. Same, but different. Uh, this passage says that Eve is a help who is the same, but different. The, the, the best English translation might be the word counterpart. Eve is Adam's counterpart. When you have a counterpart, maybe you meet your counterpart in another division at your company, or you meet your counterpart from another family. They, they have the same role as you. They might have the same title, the same job responsibilities. They're the same as you, but they're different because they're a part of a different company or family or whatever the case may be. Same, but different. Now you might look at it and you're like, I, I don't get it. Is she the same or is she different? Yes, she is same but different. And that's actually a very, very good thing. The way that we, I think, should probably translate this um, is that Azer Konegdo, a fitting, uh, rather, uh, a partner who is uh, fitting, a helper who is fitting for him, the way that we should translate it is an appropriate or fitting partner. An appropriate or fitting partner. Eve is an appropriate and fitting partner for Adam. Did you notice back in verse 18, the scripture says that um, <clears throat> God, God looked over creation halfway through day six, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. It's the only time and place during the creation narrative that God looks at stuff and he's like, oh, that's not good. Sometimes single people in particular will look at this and they'll be like, see, even God says it's not good for me to be alone. Where is my man? I'm waiting on my dude, all right? But understand marriage is just one form of community that God gives to his people. It's just one. And, and it's not even, it may not even be the most important in all honesty. Um, you could argue that church in the end is more important even than somebody who gets married. Uh, you could argue your biological family is another form of community that God has provided for, uh, for his people. So romance and marriage, it is one form of community. And the reason that God says in particular, it's not good for Adam to not have his wife is because God gave Adam a very specific command here in Genesis chapter number two. And if you think about it, there is no way that Adam could have fulfilled the creation mandate he received from God all by himself. So the creation mandate was to govern the rest of the world, to govern the, the planet, the earth in God's place. Okay. Adam was one dude and the planet is a big ball to govern. He can't do it all by himself. Instead, he needs help. If you think about it, Adam and Eve together, just the two of them weren't even going to be able to govern the earth all by themselves. They couldn't fulfill the command that God gave to them. Instead, the Bible, I want you to notice the order here that it gives in Genesis 2. God says to the humans, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and then you will subdue it and govern it. You see, Adam and Eve had to create all of us so that together humanity could fulfill the command that God had given to us. Do you understand this? The things that are said about Adam and Eve and the things that are said to Adam and Eve are by extension said about all of us and said to all of us. 
This is why it was not good for Adam to be alone, to not have a fitting partner, because if he didn't have somebody through whom he could be fruitful and multiply, then he was never going to be able to accomplish the task that God had given him. And that was to steward or manage the creation on God's behalf. Now, the final thing that some people will point out um, from chapter two is they'll say, well, Eve was created from Adam. So she, she might be secondary to him because she's derived from him, right? Like she, she came about later. She came from a side, just a small piece of him. Like she, you might call her the missing piece maybe, but he's really the most important thing. And she's just a, a small, maybe even afterthought is the way that some people kind of frame it sometimes. And, and this line of thinking, it drives me crazy, you guys, because that understanding is completely foreign to Genesis 2. Everything about what the text says here indicates sameness, equality, mutuality. It's not like Eve is a smaller part of Adam or she is lesser than him because she was created from a small component of him. The whole point of being created from his side and not from the dust like all the other creatures is so that Adam could never look at her and say, you're something else. You're something other. You're not me. I don't even know that God created you with the same dust that he created me out of. No, you came from him. And so the idea then is that we are the same men and women share the same humanity, the same biology, the same DNA. The idea that somehow the fact that she was created out of Adam means that she's lesser than him is completely crazy. This is why uh, when Adam sees Eve for the first time, his response is finally, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Literally, he's talking about how she is him. The Bible says man and his wife are united into one. The New Testament says when you love your wife, you're loving yourself. When you hate your wife, you're actually hating yourself because you two have been united together. There is sameness. There is equality. There is mutuality here in this passage. First Corinthians 11 actually addresses this very clearly. The apostle Paul has this to say, first Corinthians 11. He says, don't believe for a moment that in the Lord, men and women are independent of one another. He said, for although the first woman was taken from man, every man that's been born after has come from a woman. See, there is this mutuality. We need each other. We couldn't exist without one another. And so Genesis 1, Genesis 2 are constantly teaching the equality and the um, value of both men and women. All right, let's move on to Genesis 3, last section that we're going to talk about this morning, because obviously this is where things take a turn. In Genesis 3, we're going to read verses 16 to 23, but let me set the stage because we're jumping in kind of halfway through the story here. (coughs) Genesis 3 starts out, Adam and Eve are in the garden, hanging out, doing their thing, and the serpent shows up. Snake comes along, he starts talking to Eve, he's like, dang, you guys have this whole garden to yourself? Like, that's legit. You guys have got it pretty good. This is all yours? And she's kind of like, yeah, definitely, it's pretty good, right? Like, we have this whole place to ourselves. Well, you know, there's that one tree that God said, we can't eat, but the rest of it is ours. And the serpent is like, why do you think God told you not to eat from that tree? Hmm? The reason he told you not to eat from it is because he knows when you do, you will be like him. You will know the difference between good and evil. And he wants to keep that from you. That's a good gift. You would actually want to know the difference and you currently don't. So if you were to eat, you would become like him. And so Eve is like, well, I mean, I kind of want to know the difference between good and evil. That sounds important to know. And the fruit is really good. So why not? So she plucks the apple. She takes a bite. She gives it to Adam. He eats. And of course, uh, they realize that they're naked. They feel shame. And um, the Bible says they 
they go hi. God shows up and he looks at Adam and he's like, what have you done? Adam, this is amazing. We're not going to read it, but if you haven't read it, you need to. He says, what have you done? And Adam says, it wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave me that made me eat the fruit. (laughs) I don't know if he's blaming Eve or blaming God, but he's not taking responsibility himself. Okay. So God then pronounces consequences. You can call them judgments. You can call them punishments. You can call it outcomes, whatever you want to. God pronounces a a set of consequences on first the serpent, then the woman, and then Adam. We're going to jump in after he talks to the serpent when he begins talking to the woman. Verse 16 of Genesis 3. Then he said to the woman, as a result of your sin, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain, you will give birth. And then look at this next line. We're going to spend some time here and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you and all your life. You will struggle to scratch out a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains only by the sweat of your brow. Will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made for you were made from dust and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they'll live forever in their sinful state. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. All right. In Genesis three, even in the middle of their sin and their stupidity, we yet again, see a lot of themes of equality here. We see in verse six that Adam and Eve, we didn't read it, but you can read it on your own. Adam and Eve were equally tempted to disobey God. The scriptures say they were equally guilty before God. It's really fascinating when you go to the New Testament, because there are a couple of passages that basically say, yeah, man, because of Adam, sin has passed down to all people. He is the one who was responsible. And then there are other passages that say, yeah, because Eve was the first one to eat that fruit, man. She's the one that's responsible. It's like, well, who's responsible? They both are. They're both equally. Uh, In verse seven, they were both equally ashamed. The scripture says that they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. In verse 23, they're both equally punished. Both the man and the woman were banished from the garden. He's not like, girl, you got to get out. I'm going to make him a new one because you're the one that caused this mess. No, they're both banished. Now they do receive some specified consequences that are unique to their particular sex. However, you could argue, and I think you should argue, the weight of all of those consequences are the same, whether you're a man or a woman. And then in verse 21, we read that they were equally graced or equally blessed. Uh, When God banished them from the garden, they were naked. They had no protection against the elements that they were about to go face. And so rather than sending them out there unprotected, God kills an animal. He creates animal skins for both of them. And they go out with that grace and blessing from God. So we see a lot of equality again in Genesis three, just like we did in two and in one. But I want to focus specifically on verse 16. You know, the one, the one in which God said, you will desire to control your husband Eve, but he will rule over you. Before we really dig into this, I want you to consider for just a moment, up until sin entered the world, Adam and Eve's relationship was characterized by perfect love, perfect equality, perfect mutuality. Adam was literally the perfect spouse 
until Genesis 3.16. And Eve was literally the perfect wife until Genesis 3.16. But ever since the fall in this passage, we have exchanged the beauty of the sexes for the battle of the sexes. God intended for us to have this wonderful, um, holy, life-giving relationship with our spouse. And instead of it being that, it has become a source of conflict and fighting and difficulty for so many. Sin has caused a break in the harmony that God intended between men and women. And, And here's the truth. Men and women have fought for control for millennia. And because we're stronger and bigger than you are, we won the war. Men have ruled because we can and you can't stop us. That's sin. I believe it breaks God's heart. He didn't want men to use their size advantage against their wives, against the women that he had created. He didn't intend for them to be dominated and subjugated. Do you know he called man and woman to rule and reign over the rest of creation. Man has pushed woman down to the status of the rest of creation so that he can rule and reign over her along with everything else. That was not God's design, not his intention. Never was, never was. So now we live in a world that's been shaped by thousands of years of patriarchy. That's male rule over women. And and we're seeing a, a push now into what we call radical feminism, which is where we swap male rule for women for female rule of men. Both of those are equally bad because God created us to rule together. He created men and women, husbands and wives to be equal to one another and to focus on the creation mandate of of managing and stewarding the creation that he gave uh, to humanity. So I want to ask the question. This is a super important one. Genesis 3.16, God says, you're going to desire to rule over your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Uh, Is Genesis 3.16, is that statement prescriptive or descriptive? prescriptive or descriptive. What I mean is, does God make this statement because he is expressing how things will be as a result of sin entering the world or how things should be because sin has entered the world? Do you understand? Is God saying male rule over females is a good thing or it's a bad thing that's a result of the fall? Now, before we answer that question, this is a super good filter to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible, okay? Uh, Anytime you read scripture, man, if you get involved in the Bible, you start reading it, you're going to come across so many stories and you're going to be like, I'm sorry, they did what? (laughs) What? David was a man after God's own heart and yet he did what? Okay, so the question that we want to ask is whether or not the Bible is merely describing something that happened or it's prescribing what God wanted to happen in that situation and circumstance. And if you keep that in mind, what you're going to discover is a lot of the really terrible stuff in the Bible, God's like, yep, it's terrible. And I didn't want him to do it, but those knuckleheads wouldn't listen to me. So I'm showing you what happened to them when they refused. I can give you a good example of this. Very easy to understand. In the Old Testament, every single patriarch had multiple wives. Polygamy was like the standard and all the ancient heroes of the faith had many wives. Now, you might wonder then, does that mean that God wants men to have many wives? Or at least he's okay with it? He's like, you naughty boys, go ahead, take another one. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Okay. We go back to the beginning. Remember we said we always go back to the beginning because that reveals God's original and pure design. And God created marriage to be between one man, one woman for life. That was his design. Not one man and six women. Also, I don't know if you're aware of this. There is not a single example of polygamy in the Bible that is presented positively. It always ends in disaster for the men and the women involved in these sorts of relationships. So we can pretty confidently say, although there were people who did commit polygamy, God was simply recording what they did, not saying what he wanted them to do in their time and place. Do you understand? Okay, so we have to ask the same sort of question here about Genesis 3.16. Is God saying this is going to be a consequence of what you guys have done? Or is he saying you will, I want you to experience the consequence of what you guys have done? Um, I, I think that in order to understand that, okay, we, we want to look at the consequences that are spelled out in Genesis 3. Okay, um, let's look at the, the things that the scripture says. There are five consequences of the fall that are listed for humans here. The, the first, verse 18, tells us that uh, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. Can we put this on the screen? The ground's going to produce thorns and thistles. Um, uh, Adam uh, and Eve, up until this point, they lived in the garden. The, the, f- the food has just like come up naturally. They didn't have to tend it. They didn't have to work the garden. Apple trees were producing apples and jalapeno bushes were producing jalapenos. I don't know what they had back then. But anyway, they had food and it was just there and they walked out and they plucked it and it was awesome. They didn't even have to work for it. But God says as a result of sin entering the world, because sin didn't just impact people, it also impacted the rest of creation. So now there's going to be thorns and thistles that they're going to have to deal with. Verse 19, we read that uh, Adam and Eve are going to have hard labor in order to survive. They're going to scratch out a living, basically, is what the scripture says. In verse 19, we also read one of the consequences is that sickness and death enter the world. They were made to live forever, but God didn't want them to live forever in their sinful separated state. And so now they're going to have to deal with sickness and death. Verse 16, uh, God specifically addresses women. And he says, uh, you're going to have very painful childbirth. And then we get to the big one here. Verse 16, God says, men are going to rule over you. That's what the word patriarchy means. So the question is, is that last one God's will? Or is he saying that's a natural consequence of disobeying me? In the same way that like you might tell your kid, if you touch the hot stove, you're going to burn your hand. Does that mean you want your kid to burn his hand? No, you're just saying this is the natural consequence you're going to have to deal with if you do. Is, is that the way we should view this particular verse? Well, in order to make a decision on the last one, let's focus on the other uh, four for just a moment, okay? The scripture says that the land is going to bear thorns and thistles. Do we believe that that is descriptive or prescriptive? Do we believe that God wants us to deal with the um, inconvenience and pain of thorns and thistles? Or is this an unfortunate result of sin that Christians are called to push back against? Are you with me? Well, nobody says, yep, thorns and thistles, that's a part of the judgment God gave us. We just got to deal with it, you know? No, we create pesticides and weed killers and all of these different things, farming techniques to make it a little bit easier and more efficient for us to grow crops. When it comes to hard labor, we create heavy machinery. We've got tractors and front end loaders and all these different things. We've got robots working in our factories. Nobody says, hey, God said work is supposed to be hard. So don't do anything to make it easier. Otherwise, you're trying to circumvent his punishments. 
Nobody does that. Nobody does that with sickness and death. We don't say when we have a headache, oh, well, God said I was going to have sickness and death and this is his will for me, so I'm not going to take an Advil. No. Oh, I cut my finger, uh, but you know what? Harm and and sickness and potential death. Like God says, one day I'm going to die. Maybe today's the day. I don't know. That's up to him. No. We go to the hospital, we get sutures, and we try to heal ourselves. When it comes to pain and labor, we're not like, I don't know what to tell you, ladies, like bite a stick or something. You got to bear it. Okay. This is God's will for you. No, we offer you an epidural or nitrous oxide or whatever other stuff they give you. And it it alleviates the labor pains that you experience. Now, anytime I talk about this, there's always some lady who says, well, I had a natural birth. Thank you very much. You're a warrior. Okay. I don't know how you did it. I could never do that. I honor you. But in the same way that you didn't take an epidural, I've never driven a tractor. I'm not saying that everybody is going to do every one of these things. What I am saying is it seems to me that humanity is committed to alleviating and ameliorating almost all of these consequences of the fall. But when it comes to patriarchy, when it comes to men ruling over women, we're like, sorry, guys, God said we were going to rule. Seems like that's what he wants. That's not consistent. Either God wants all of these and any attempt to circumvent them is an attempt to circumvent his righteous judgment on us, or God wants us to reverse the curse on every single one of these. You can't pick and choose. You can't choose four out of five. It's all or nothing. That's the only consistent hermeneutic. What drives me really crazy is that it's not even like the last one that will say, oh, that's God's will. We break it down even further than that. And we break the sentence in half and we say, oh, women, you're gonna, your desire is going to be to control your husband. That's bad. That's sin. Y'all shouldn't be doing that. But your husband is going to rule over you. That's good. God actually wants that. It's the same sentence. Either they're both bad or they're both good. We can't break them apart like that. So what are we supposed to see here? I am convinced that as Christians, we work to reverse the curse of patriarchy, just like we do every other aspect of the curse on the fall. I believe that is our call. That's our place and position. We're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks, but particularly when it comes to marriages, our goal should not be to have a Genesis 3.16 marriage. Our goal should be a Genesis 1 and 2 marriage. A marriage that is characterized by equality and unity and partnership with one another. We are cooperating and working together instead of fighting with one another. That is what God wants for your marriage. It's what he wants for mine and every other marriage as well. So I'm going to end with some questions for reflection. I'll be the first to admit today's message was kind of abstract. It's kind of deep in the weeds of scripture and things like that. But these last few questions will help to give it some handles, make it practical for you. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to see that this is going to get intensely practical, maybe too practical for some of you. Okay. So the first question is this, just answer this in your own heart between you and God right now. Do you cherish your spouse or do you resent your spouse? If you're married, do you cherish or resent your spouse? I think too many Christians have learned or over time chosen to resent their spouse rather than cherishing them as their life partner, valuable, necessary to accomplish what God intends for you to accomplish here on earth. Instead, we're like, "Mm, I married the wrong one. I, I know I can't say that out loud, so I won't. But in my heart, married the wrong one. Wouldn't do it again. 
one out of 10, don't recommend. <laughs> or, you know, I married the right one, but then they changed. And now they're not the right one. And if I could get out of this, I would, but I'm a Christian. I said, I don't believe in divorce, so I guess I'll stick it out. I'm going to hate every minute of it. I'm going to think bad thoughts. I'm going to say bad words, sometimes behind their back, sometimes to their face. I just think too many Christians have come to resent their spouse instead of cherish their spouse. Listen, this is an easy trap for any of us to fall into. And I'm not beating you up over this. What I'm trying to communicate is it doesn't have to be that way. God doesn't intend for you to have a a hate relationship or even a love-hate relationship. He wants you to have a love-love relationship with your spouse. I got to imagine Adam and Eve, after they got kicked out of the garden, there was some resentment there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure they had a lot of fights over who was responsible for getting evicted from the garden. I'm sure they did. But here's what I know. You can recover the love that you feel like you've lost. It's possible. I do so much marriage counseling. Um, it's part of the reason we're talking about this right now. Because I'm like, whew, it is tough. Some of you guys are really, really struggling. And here's, here's the good news that I, I have just found as a pastor doing this for 25 plus years now. Uh, most marriages are salvageable. I really believe that. Most can be saved. There are some that cannot. And that's okay. There are certain allowances God makes in scripture for two Christians to walk away from another, get remarried, all that sort of stuff. Some cannot be saved, but actually many can. The problem is we don't, we don't realize both of us, both people in a marriage don't realize just how much work it takes to make it work, to recover from resentment. What, what I'll often hear as I talk with people is they'll say, look, I, I want to love him or her the way that I used to. And I'm open to it. Like, God, give me the love for them, please. I, I want it again. And so I sit around and I wait for like the flame of romance to flicker back up again. And I'm waiting and it's not flickering. Can I tell you, that's because that's not how fires work. Okay. Go to your house tonight, build a campfire in your backyard in your little fire pit, let it burn all the way down to ashes, and then I want you to sit there for the next three years waiting for that flame to flicker up again. Never going to happen. In order for the fire to be rekindled, you got to do some work. You got to stir that thing up. You got to add some wood. You got to introduce a spark of flame in order to get that fire roaring again. If you think I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait and eventually the love is going to return, never going to happen. So I encourage you, if you resent your spouse, but you want to cherish them, don't sit around waiting for the spirit to zap you with feelings of cherishing. Instead, do the things that will lead you to cherish them. Like think actively and regularly, what do I love about this person? You spent so much time thinking about what you hate about them. Think about the things that you love. What attracted you to them in the first place? What are the things that they do today that, that make you um, fall in love or feel loving towards them again? What are the things that fill your cup? Keep that kind of gratitude journal. You'll find out very quickly. They do a lot that you appreciate and that you value. Choose to speak words that build them up instead of tear them down. Like, man, it's so like disheartening to hear the way that some men talk about their wives and the way that some wives talk about their husbands. Like, seriously, this is your cherished life partner. You chose them. 
So like speak about them as if they were your cherished life partner. If you speak about them that way, they might actually become that to you again. There are an infinite number of things you could do, but you got to start somewhere and you got to actively do something if you want to move from resenting your spouse to cherishing them once again. Second question for reflection is this, is your marriage characterized by cooperation and control? Uh, or control. Is your marriage a happy cooperation or is it a battle for control? Again, you can just answer this like in the, in the uh, intimacy of your own heart right now. And then maybe later on the drive home, you can talk to your spouse about this. Is it a cooperation or is it a battle for control? Uh, we'll talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, but if, if you would say, man, this, it feels more like a battle than it does a partnership. It feels like we're at odds with one another instead of partnering together and working towards the same goals. You got to get some help, guys. You got to get some help. I, I don't know how else to say it. I'm saying this lovingly as your pastor. If you are suffering week in and week out in an unhappy marriage, don't wait until you're certain that thing is already over anyway to call a pastor or to call a counselor. Like many of the marriages that today couldn't be saved could have been saved if people would have picked up a phone six months earlier, a year earlier. Things could be different. So God's will is not for you to suffer. God's will is not for you to fight with your spouse all the time. God's will is for you guys to lovingly get on the same page and then go conquer the stinking world together. We want to help you with that. But the only way that it's ever going to happen is if you're honest about the struggles that you're really having. Last question is this. It's the big one. To what degree is God present in your marriage? To what degree is God present in your marriage? This is critical. The biggest tragedy of the fall in Genesis 3, it wasn't the loss of the garden. It wasn't the fact that sickness and disease were going to be a reality. It wasn't even the battle for sexes that resulted. The biggest tragedy in the fall was that they lost their perfect relationship with their creator. And so many times couples can think, yep, I need God in my marriage. I need God to save my marriage. I need God to save my spouse. I understand that. But can I be direct for a moment? What you really need is for God to save you. Every person on the planet has been separated by God because of our sinfulness. It doesn't make us awful, terrible people. It just makes us sinners. And that sin has caused a fracture in our relationship with God. The good news is through Jesus, God has made it possible for us to be forgiven and restored to him. All we have to do is ask, cry out to him and say, God, I want you to forgive me and save me. And he will. If you were, allow God, were to allow God to save you, if your spouse were to truly allow God to save them, your marriage would stand a much higher chance of being saved as well. So rather than focusing on them and what they need to do, focus on you. Focus on your relationship with God. Let him speak to you, then respond in obedience and faith and trust that he will bring about a good end to anyone who does. God, we offer ourselves to you today. And I pray on behalf of those marriages that are struggling, my heart breaks for them. God, it is hard to see so many couples that are crumbling and I know it's not your will. And so I'm praying, God, that they would cry out to you. You would intervene in their circumstances. You would convict of sin. You would bring about repentance and help them to cherish and nourish one another the way that your scripture calls them to. I'm praying, God, that we would be a, a church full of strong, healthy partnerships in which men and women are not at war with one another, but instead loving, serving, and seeking you together. Lord, make this a reality. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.